Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, the boys return to the Dune universe for a discussion on predestination of the individual within societal organizations. Gavin compares the Bene Gesserit to Tiger Moms, Sean summons up the shadow of libertarianism, and I fix the worst of our audio issues. Remember to email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com to send us questions, comments, and topic ideas. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at CultureCampCast, as well as on Spotify, and be sure to give us a five-star rating. Right, so today we're going to be talking about Dune again. We didn't exhaust our topics last time, so we figured we'd get to it again. Uh, you know, we went over the background of Dune last time, but uh, today we'll just recap a little bit of that for anybody who, who might not have listened to that episode as it pertains to the issues we're going to talk about today. Dune is a science fiction novel, recently got turned into a movie, and its, its core themes have to do with uh, ecology and also with uh, human society and the adaptation of human society to the, the ecology of the main planet on what it, which it's set. But it also has to do, and we're going to talk about that today, with the organization of, of human societies. In the universe of Dune, uh, humanity has fought a war to liberate itself from thinking machines, from basically artificial intelligence. And so one of the reasons the novel holds up compared to other pieces of science fiction uh, from around that time is that there's a reason for there not to be the kind of ubiquitous computers that we have in our, our current time. Lots of science fiction will have computing capacity that is inferior to what we presently have, even though it's set thousands of years in the, un in the future. Uh, Dune, this works out because the, even the computers that we have would be contrary to their religion. And so it's a, a society that is ruled by an emperor has a, a number of great houses whose power together balances out the power of the emperor, so it's like an internal system of checks and balances. Different houses hold different entire planets in fief from the emperor, you know, control them, have use of their resources. And um, this society, because it lacks computers, has to mold human beings into the roles that computers uh, would hold in a high-tech civilization. So they have uh, the order of the Mentats, who are capable of incredible feats of mental calculation, and they have the order of the Guild Navigators. The Guild Navigators are capable of, of doing the computations and the analysis necessary to uh, basically fold space over itself so that there can be instantaneous jumps or very, very fast jumps between stars. And there are different orders who ca that conduct other things, but those are the two main ones that, that people are conditioned into in order to replace computers. And those orders serve as kind of the archetype for other orders that condition people into other social roles that might or might not exist if, if computers were already there. Uh, but one of the interesting things about this society being a feudal society and being a society that requires people in these roles that is contrary to what we would consider to be the good society in our own is that people have to be raised into these these roles, whether you're a member of a noble house who's going to have to take over the noble house, you know, or you're, you're in a role be below them in below the nobility in one of these groups, or, or you're going to be conditioned into a, a mentat or a guild navigator. You have to be basically trained from a, a fairly young age up into those roles or if you aren't trained from a young age trained from a young age you get put into that role and and really can't escape it and so it's very contrary to our con conception of of kind of self-authorship and control over one's own life yeah so probably the most fascinating concept to me in the entire dune universe uh obviously what we talked about last week but what you brought up this uh, this past war against machines and machines almost wipe humanity out and therefore we have to replace all the functions that machines would serve in society with human capacity. And to do this, humans have to be sort of synthetically enhanced. They have to be genetically enhanced and chemically enhanced. And it's a process that has to begin from a very young age. And so the point is that in order for, sci for society to function at this level of uh, technical capacity, which is needed, you have to make a lot of choices for people before they're ever able to make those choices themselves. Is the term you use, self-authorship, which is a great term for what we're talking about. And so 
even though this takes place, what, 20, I think 20,000 years in the future, yes. ostensibly, uh, even though it takes place 20,000 years in the future, you're still dealing with something that I see uh, pop up in the Iliad, which is uh, I just taught that to my students and I went over Greek values in the Iliad. And one of the central values in the Iliad is kir, uh, the ancient Greek word for sort of like fate or destiny. The modern Greek word, I suppose, would be mira. And the whole idea is that whether or not it is noble to accept your fate. You know you are going to die, or you know you have a duty to perform a certain function. And even though on an individual level you don't want to do it, everyone else is better off by you choosing to do your duty. And what's so interesting is that in the Dune universe, because of this past with the machines, people have... It's almost like our modern era of this individual ethos of self-authorship is kind of this blip in humanity, and that for humanity to survive, they've just had to sort of accept this presupposition that maybe it's not always best if you choose what your own fate is. And that runs very counter to how we think about society today. That's almost heretical. I mean, it's it's sort of... Uh, I think it's actually considered... Uh, Self-determination is, is considered a fundamental human right... Uh, under one of the UN's many conventions of human rights. And I think that is probably one of the most interesting themes in the series, and that's what we'll get into here in this episode. And one of the conceits of the book is that uh, <clears throat> the system that existed you know, with computers and with the thinking machines, because we were able to basically put onto the machines a lot of the functions of running our civilization, that eventually when they took over, it wasn't even terribly difficult for them to do so. Right. I think some of the later canon may, may give a story that's a little different from that. But for the most part, um, the replacement of humans in decision-making processes by thinking machines, which you know reduced us to a, a situation where we were basically controlled by them and, and led to the war, uh, was caused by the, the fact that people ceded so much control to them as, as we wanted to basically do whatever we felt like. And it's interesting to note that when we when we talk about our present self-determination, a lot of that has to do with, with our careers in society, right? And so it kind of, uh, to some degree, depends on the idea of, of there being some sort of market system, right, where you can choose your own uh, path within that market system to different kinds of, of careers and, and, you know, basically self-create after, you know, after your childhood years uh, in, into the, the social role that you would like to fulfill, well, and there's this question, uh, and it's a question I think we've debated many times before. I think this is the first time we'll debate it on the podcast. But if everybody in society chooses this individual ethos of you can do whatever you want, uh, will society function? There's sort of all the, always this assumption that there will be enough doctors, there will be enough engineers. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really need this ethos that we often associate, uh, by the way, with immigrant populations in the U.S., the idea that immigrant populations are much more prone to sort of pushing their kids to become doctors and engineers and lawyers. Yeah, and more prone to entrepreneurial activity as well. Yeah, and you have to question at some point whether or not that's actually a healthy attitude, whether or not the immigrant populations are actually making a smarter, more pro-civilizational decision by insisting that their children... uh, pursue jobs with both wealth and prestige as opposed to like, you know, I, uh, I am generalizing here as opposed to like a host population, which insists that everybody should be an artist and do what they want. When clearly that's not true. Clearly in society, if everybody adopts that ethos, you don't really have a society. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because the, the reason the system we have can persist in the way that it does. Uh, well, for, for one thing, we use the price mechanism, uh, from economics basically to, allocate who's going to end up in different jobs. People go into a certain form of training, cultivate a set of skills, and then they sell their labor in the open market. And people try to get into the, the jobs that have high pay and that kind of thing. And then and so the, the system is to some degree self-regulating in that way. But the system also definitely depends on a large amount of, of what some developmental economists have called brain drain from the, the you know underdeveloped world, the third world, whichever you'd like to call it less developed nations and uh, that, that bring people to the United States in order to do these highly skilled jobs uh, here, whether they're in, in science or medicine. Um, and, and the question that 
many people have asked is whether this is benefit you know this this is beneficial to the in, to the first world is it actually beneficial it, it, but it's not really beneficial to the third world because these people could be performing these functions there but instead they chase the higher uh, salaries here and I'm not faulting those people it's it's eminently uh, reasonable to do that for your family if you, you're you're trying to build them a better life, but it has these secondary effects, and um, and then within the United States, you do seem to see, uh, as opposed to the certain communities in the United States that push their or certain groups in the United States that push their children to, um, you know, achieve in this really serious fashion. And, and move into these these higher, more prestigious classes versus other people who are much more laissez-faire, laissez-passer about the whole thing, right? And I think that the way, you know, one, one of the ways in which Dune shines a mirror onto this whole system for me is that when you look at Dune, right, I'll, I'll use a, a group as an example, the, the Bene Gesserit, right? The Bene Gesserit are a, a sisterhood. It's only women who are part of it. And they train women to basically have complete control over their their physical form, over their bodies, and and their mental powers from a very young age. And a lot of the training that goes into producing women who can do this results in the deaths of the people involved, right? Which is a characteristic it has in common with, for example, like the ancient Roman army. They would always try to make sure some of their recruits died, so you'd see a little blood before you got to the battlefield. Um, no, sign me up. Yeah, right. And... Um, they and then uh, in addition to that, right? These these girls are selected at a young age. They don't really have a choice in it, and they're kind of forced into it because they have the aptitude. And when they come out, they're they have all of these powers, like these almost supernatural martial powers, and uh, they ha- they're able to access uh, genetic memories from prior generations. And they so they basically have this this mystical power and this this of of being able to remember things from the lives of the, the women along their maternal line, lines who, who bore them, basically, which gives them incredible insight into human history and human religion and different things of that nature. And we would look at a process like this, like if you tried to do this to, say, a bunch of children in our modern world, we would, you know, or at least in the United States, we would attempt to stop it immediately because it seems just absolutely yeah, we would, horrifying. We would view this as it's oppressive and tyrannical and monstrous and this is child abuse. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And... Um, and the the same thing in the Dune universe with the training of Mentats and Guild Navigators, who are absolutely essential for the functioning of their, their galactic civilization. And the same thing with the, the raising of the, the children of these, um, you know, great houses who have to be trained from childhood to perceive uh, uh, when they could be assassinated and, and trained in martial arts and everything like that, just so they'll survive in this kind of cutthroat world of... of vendettas and politics of these these noble houses right we would consider the system abusive and them abusive but within the context of the what i think is an eminently reasonable work of of fiction um you know and i mean that to say that it has verisimilitude like there have been other points in time right in in human civilization when all of this has been necessary so it's not like somebody's just setting up something that's oppressive for fun this reflects a human reality that has existed for a large number of people right like you were saying in the in the the iliad has certain characteristics uh, of of the ethos that they have to have but you can look back to the medieval period in europe and and to feudal periods in other places and see similar forces at work so we would look at this and say, oh, this is awful, this is child abuse, and it, it serves this very important purpose within their society, and so you can see why they would do it. It's difficult to uh, look at the the system that they have and propose a better way for it to operate be, because of the, the way that humanity has been backed into this cul-de-sac by not having certain technologies. But what I find interesting is that if you look around in our culture, I think there really are people who have been conditioned in this similar way just by their families. One of the things that we've seen more recently is the emergence of a class of people in the United States who, you know, they're, they're, they get their children into uh, the best preschools, right? Like if the, the track starts at that point, they have their kids engaged in large numbers of extracurriculars and their children don't have 
any really strong choice as to whether to participate in them. They're scheduling their entire lives. This is kind of the helicopter parenting or even the tiger mom parenting that we've seen people talk about, but it's taken to this extreme level so that almost everything from your, your remote childhood all the way to the time that you graduate from high school is sort of centered around the idea of being as competitive as possible for getting into an elite university and conditioning yourself into the kind of person who could go to one of those elite universities. And so it's almost like, whereas these processes were set up intentionally in this work of fiction, our society has managed to just, through uh, unintended effects, innovate itself into a position where we are doing something similar to a large number of people. And, and that brings forth the question of whether or not that's socially necessary in our civilization or not. Well, and the whole time that we're doing it, we're going to be, because we can't do it the way it's done in Dune. In Dune, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, in Dune, they sort of accept uh, slavery wholesale as just sort of a reality of life. Uh, in modern society, you have parents who will, you know, do this tiger mom helicopter parenting sort of thing. They'll send their kids to all the best schools and they'll have their entire life planned out before them. But it will be articulated in the language of love and individuality and, and just caring the best as you possibly can for your child, probably to make them feel better about themselves. On a completely anecdotal level, <clears throat> I've met kids who have had lives similar to what you describe. And that sort of method of parenting, I think, is very hit miss because I've met some kids who have become very successful. Yes. But a lot of them, as soon as they sort of uh, were leapt out of the Petri dish of their childhood cultivation and they were introduced to the free world, they went more wild and hedonistic mm -hmm. than your average frat boy. And I think there's something to be said about that. Like, I'm, I, I don't want to give the impression here on the podcast that I'm sitting here saying that maybe society works best, uh, only if children's lives are planned ahead of them. And that, you know, I do have this problem with whether or not excellence and achieving excellence has room for an individual ethos. I think in some way those two can be mutually exclusive, but at the same time, I recognize that like, uh, this sort of unrefined method of choosing a child's future, uh, before they're ever even born can be immensely damaging to the child. And even if you're not worried about the mental well-being of the child, even if you're just worried about the success of the child, it's not always a guarantee of success either. Right. It depends on the personality of the child. I think that when you're raising children, for me, the goal is to raise uh, a virtuous human being. Right. That's, that's the fundamental thing. And in different societies, that means somewhat different things. And at different times, that means somewhat different things. But I think when you look at, at the classical and uh, conception of virtue that in many ways exists across different civilizations, there is a, a core of human ethics there that you're trying to inculcate. And, of course, part of that is is that a human should do you know, meaningful, useful work, right? socially useful work. In our society, that often means doing something in a in a capitalist system to produce, right? Because society has to produce. It has to produce things. It has to have, you know, people who don't produce in the sense of material goods, right? People who produce uh, services or people who engage in administration and different things of that nature. So it's not just a purely material thing, but but that's something that, that has to be promoted and, and in our te technological society requires a whole lot of schooling in order to put people forward like doctors and scientists and engineers who can manage those forces of production. You can't do it without those people having had that education. But it's also about producing somebody who's, who's functional outside of work in their relations with their family and the other organs and units of society. And so the, I think the question that knowing that there is something that we should be conditioning children for, uh, the question becomes is that the thing that we're actually conditioning for? Because when you, when you talk about these people who are attempting to gain entry into the upper classes, which I think have been partially or, or not totally, but in many cases identified with what people are calling the professional managerial class, though when we're talking about elite schools, we're talking about the very top of this professional managerial class. Right? And this is people who hold white-collar professional jobs at the, the top of large institutions like government bureaucracies or, or high up in, in corporate, corporate corporations and corporate bureaucracies and, and other things of and that they, what, what they would call in UK society the great and the good. Yes. The, the, the school marms of Oxford and the Boris Johnsons of the world. Yeah. 
so those people are at the top and then of course it you know it goes by by stages further and further down until you reach kind of the more the more middle class right and so we're talking about people who are trying to climb up this ladder through elite universities and the the elite universities may have been set up for among other purposes trying to cultivate these specific people but if if we're talking about cultivating children up to virtue the question becomes if you're trying to to optimize to get into one of these institutions, are you actually optimizing for virtue? Are you actually optimizing for the good? Are you actually optimizing for social functionality? Because whenever you're trying to measure one's worthiness for something like that, and like like an education to those things, uh, the metric itself is never the same thing. Is not the the thing itself, right? Right. And so people condition for the metric rather than the thing itself. And they, those people will, on average, outperform the people who have conditioned for the thing itself because they're being put through the, the system of the metric. And so I think that becomes a very, uh, you know, a, a very interesting question as far as getting into these elite universities and what the people are being conditioned for. And then once you get there, the question becomes uh, when, you know, when these elite universities especially are in processing these people and putting them through an education and conditioning them for these roles, are they conditioning them to exercise these roles in a pro-social way, or are they uh, conditioning them partially for pro-sociality and partially for, for anything else? Because when we talk about moving people into these positions, we're talking about moving them into positions of, um, excuse me, into positions of power. And uh, whenever you move someone into a position like that, uh, it may be necessary to move them into the position and have them exercise power, and they may be a virtuous person, but whenever there's any kind of wiggle room in that, they're always going to fit their own personal preferences or prejudices into their position of power and be able to, through prestige or, or through force, push them on other people. So there's a really interesting libertarian answer to this, and I wasn't planning on bringing this up. Uh, let me know if you think it's too far afield, I would say from left field, but it's kind of more from right field because it's from Hans Hermann Hoppe. But okay, so you're a kid. You've been raised uh, in one of these elite circles. You went to Harvard. You were, you were drinking buddies with a bunch of dudes in skull and crossbones. And now you find yourself being groomed to, I don't know, be on like the director board for the Fed or something. And the question is whether or not you're competent. Uh, you've sort of grown up in this bureaucracy, not a bureaucracy, you've, you've grown up in this institution. Uh, it's sort of an amalgam of bureaucracy and traditional family that has preceded you, and which is very intent on you because you're related to the right people inheriting this position, which is sort of, uh, that were, that's counterproductive to the idea of merit, of you actually being good at your job. And so these choices have been made for you, and you're not one of these people that has taken to your training. Mm-hmm. And what this has to do with Hans Hermann Hoppe, so Ed, he wrote a book called Democracy, the God that Failed. And in it, he talks about the idea of a natural aristocracy. So to understand Hoppe, you have to understand that, like most libertarians, uh, even though I like a lot of what he says, I dislike other things that he says. One of the things he does is he treats com- competition as like this uh, panacea for pro-social yes. activity, civilizational activity. And he talks a lot about a natural aristocracy. And he supposes the people who should actually be in charge of a society that should rule them are a natural aristocracy are people who basically took power either through, through basically their own wit or their own ability to generate enough Sort of violence. like in a merit, meritocratic means is the idea? Yeah. Well, and the, whole, and the thing is it's not necessarily meritocratic means within a system that has preceded them, right? They're mm-hmm. not the best at navigating that system. They're the best at conquering and establishing their own system. Mm-hmm. So what happens, you have every aristocracy, he supposes, and he gives like a brief history of England of the new aristocracy that gets established after 1066. You have a natural aristocracy. They're in charge because they deserve to be in charge because they took it. But over time, the natural aristocracy degenerates it stagnates and it's because it sets up this system where just sort of like uh you know you've been reading jacques Ellul, so you've reading been reading a lot about technique we can't help but set up systems that make life easier for us and in the process we sort of degrade ourselves and what happens mm-hmm. is you have sort of the men that set up these institutions of power that run western civilization and 
in order to ensure that their families and their line and their wealth is the one that stays on top, they establish systems where this small group of families actually has access to like Harvard and Oxford and mm -hmm. all the sort of institutions of power. And over time, the natural aristocracy becomes the stagnant, degenerate aristocracy that has all the power of the natural aristocracy, but they're just not good at their jobs. They bring into question the whole idea that there should be any form of aristocracy in the first place. I think in our current social context, the elite universities do have an element of that old aristocracy in them, but I think that they've also made a serious effort uh, that I'm not deprecating to try and pull in large numbers of other people from other groups in the United States with the understanding that they are producing the, the aristocracy, whether natural or not, in the United States, right? The people who are going to be at the top of all of these institutions. I think the question becomes whether or not uh, the people that uh, are, are being brought out and into these institutions are being... Uh, conditions in such a way so that their behavior is completely pro-social. When people go through some kind of process to, you know, let's say you're trying to create someone who can run a corporation or who can run a large government bureaucracy or a non-governmental entity or something like that, there are a couple of different ways that you can evaluate that person, right? Um, if you can allow that person to actually work at a job where there are some sort of objective metrics coming out right like if they're supposed like if you're hiring somebody to be a salesperson they're either making sales or they they aren't right yeah. and it doesn't really matter where their degrees from if they can whip up those sales right so you don't need to you might look at their resume and get them in that position uh because they have a, a track record of of doing well before but the main thing is is that the, is that their output is good but there's a lot of things in our society that it's not as easy to directly measure the output and so uh, in, in these other corporations and institutions, you get people from institutions of high reputation with the expectation that the people who've gone through this system will be able to, uh, to do a good job in these systems where there, there may not be as much feedback. Uh, as pivoting a little bit from the people who are at the very top to sort of the broader what I was calling professional managerial class, one of the things that the criticisms that have been brought up of the, this group of people is that, you know, for example, they've been selected for conformity or the ability to work hard at doing whatever task is set before them regardless of whether it is actually meaningful and as a result that we've got a, a group of people who who may not be able to give that output that we need in terms of leadership and in terms of um, innovation and in terms of uh, the, the proper functioning of institutions and instead we have a group of people who are say excellent at producing compliance of those institutions with like government mandates and uh, with whatever the, the social ethos du jour is. And what that would mean is is that rather than those institutions uh, having people in them that orient them in a pro-social problem-solving fashion, we have institutions that orient themselves toward doing what elite social classes see as the right thing uh, rather than uh, the, the actual function they're supposed to serve in terms of, of production and ameliorating the the situation of disadvantaged people in society and, and other things of that nature. And you can see how in a high, you know, whenever there is a highly technological society that produces a large amount, there's always that temptation to decadence and the temptation of, of using up that production that already exists in the way, you know, in a way to, to support people's, uh, uh, say, minute ethical preferences rather than uh, in solving actual problems, because once you you yourself are in a situation where where you're comfortable or where large portions of society are comfortable, then it can dissipate the energy that would go into ameliorating real social. So I feel uh, really great about this philosophical conversation. Uh, I understand the underlying points, but I think up to this point, I don't think either of us have actually brought in any concrete examples. And I was wondering if you could give me something. Uh, solid to grab onto for this institutional problem that you're talking about. Yeah, so I, I think that 
Yeah, so I think a good example of this would be if a you know, person goes through this process throughout their, their childhood and then they end up in an elite institution. They're produced from that elite institution. And then, uh, you know, they might go to work for some sort of uh, non-governmental entity or some sort of consulting agency that's supposed to uh, provide, say, you know, improvements in diversity for a major corporation, right? And, and a lot of corporations are doing these diversity initiatives right now. Uh, that bring in these outside consultants uh, to talk about diversity and to do, you know, different forms of training and things of that nature. Uh, but, and and the people who are doing this, I think, are very, very earnest. And, like, I'm not uh, casting aspersions of their motivations. I think that a lot of them really do want to improve the diversity situation in corporations and, and really do want to, to promote racial equality in the United States. But the, the thing is is that they, they do these trainings and the, the trainings don't appear to actually have any sort of impact on the diversity within these firms. And so what you have is a situation where people have these elite credentials and they have these good intentions and uh, they've, they've been brought out of these, these large-scale institutions and they do something that's supposed to ameliorate a problem and it simply doesn't. And so it dissipates a bunch, you know, the, basically the, the time and, and resources that go into this are wasted because it doesn't fix the problem. And um, in that case, it's just a, a net loss to society. You spent this huge amount of time turning this person into a certain kind of person who's supposed to be at the very top of their game and the very top of what our civilization can produce. And you end up plugging them into the system in a way that, that doesn't provide, is intended to provide benefit for some of our our society's most vulnerable members, but simply doesn't. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one of them is just that when you have, you're an elite who's come through an elite institution that you don't really understand the situation of the, the or I'm not saying you never do, but often you don't understand the situation of the people on the ground. You know, I think this is one reason why uh, gains for the working class historically have come through like trade union movements rather than from, like, vanguardist leftist movements. Uh, at least that's my interpretation of what I've seen. So on that uh, diversity industry note, I think another notable example of this precise phenomenon has to do with the 2017 uh, Michigan uh, diversity hire scandal, or as diversity coordinator scandal. If anybody is familiar with this, basically the University of Michigan, there was this giant, like, audit carried out of their budget, and they found that there was something like over 80 positions uh, in the university in the university of diversity coordinators and i think the lowest salary on the list was like ninety thousand dollars a year yes and it was this giant institutional drain on the university of michigan and it turned out to be a huge scandal because uh how many diversity coordinators do you actually need uh whether or not uh, so I think everybody I think everybody firmly knows my position on this. I think that the diversity industry is very cynical. I think uh, diversity coordinators uh, are an institutional drain. I don't see them as inherently necessary. Some people do. Uh, I think the mother of diversity consultancies, Jane Elliott, uh, who went around doing her famous blue eyes, brown eyes experiment, has been nothing but detrimental to race relations within Western civilization. And there are a couple of studies carried out about her work, which would indicate that I'm right about that. But this is a great example to me of this problem of people who come from elite institutions and they sort of take kind of like elite jobs mm -hmm. that are informed by uh, elite sensibilities, which I would say what we call politically correctness and I, and uh, the sort of ethos behind diversity coordinators is almost exclusively an elite sensibility. When you're talking about something like the people at the University of Michigan, uh, I mean, clearly, if they're being paid that much, and I, I assume that if they're being paid that much, they, they all have degrees or advanced degrees, then yeah, you are just uh, creating jobs for a, a specific elite whose, whose work is to go around and, and more or less police the actions of other people. And you know you can you can do the math yourself as far as as the tuition that could be provided for low income students or or partial tuition aid. The actual helping of people. Yes, the, the people uh, exactly. That they, they yes. To help. Yeah. Yes, and and that's really the what my criticism is based in here. It's like I'm, I'm not trying to be. Um, what am I trying to say? It's it's that. Uh, I, I'm not even arguing with the goals of these programs. 
I'm saying that the programs don't achieve their goals, and that's an example of of this problem. Is that this gets it gets dissipated into something that looks good in the eyes of other elites, rather than some than in the eye than you know actually seriously dealing with with problems. I think this is a problem for a number of charities, um, but you know there there are other steps that can be taken to improve these situations. But they if you end up taking ineffective steps, you feel like you've done something and you don't move on to the things that actually help. I think uh, very much that the goals of these movements have very much to do with the character of who who participates in the elite sensibilities. It wouldn't have the character it did if it weren't mostly wealthy people from like Connecticut and New York staffing these institutions going into you know getting terminal mbas and then going into university administration and insisting they need more or people who have been assimilated into that specific culture right yeah because it doesn't always you don't always have to go to harvard or oxford or that or uc davis yeah well or i even mean that there there are people who aren't part of that core kind of um yankee elite school intergenerational group but then they get brought into those universities and seem to be uh, turned into elites that have that that kind of, of sensibility, right? And and you know my problem with that is that uh, while that elite sensibility may have merits in some areas, it doesn't seem to be effective at solving these these specific problems that we're talking about. And so there's that there's that problem of over like like I said the the you know problem of taking somebody and and attempting to condition them into something that that is excellence but missing it for the purposes that excellence is supposed to be put to right and i find that uh i, I mean it's kind of a horror story right it's, it's deeply ironic because you know where we started was with a society that was doing this to actually functionally uh produce people who could who could take the place of computers and then we looked for the nearest analog in our society and it's unclear that we're actually uh pumping out people who who are socially functional and who are providing that benefit uh, in which case it is just kind of a uh, a suffering engine, right? Because those people, instead of being able to to self-author or do what they want, are being being pushed into this this box and then being given this moral mission and failing to accomplish it, which is you know that's that's horrifying. I think I think though, you know, having discussed that and and given the archetype of that, I think that it is possible to fail in the other direction. It's something we were talking about earlier, which is to to fail to try and shape people in any meaningful way and instead just letting them uh, pursue what they want to do in a way that, that doesn't have social utility. So I don't, I still don't think we got the numbers for it, but there has been uh, since the mid 1980s, uh, yeah, well, not the mid 1980s, really since I think the FAFSA act in 1992, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you got uh, a much larger population had access to essentially what are ninja loans from the government. And this ethos and this culture that we were all raised in, mm-hmm. which is you can be whatever you want when you grow up. And uh, like, you know, I... But you need to go to college first. Well, but you need to go to college first. But also, I understand how a parent might look at this ethos and be, and they look at their child and go, my child mm-hmm. can be an astro- astronaut. And of course, you know, it's not with it. It's really not within the nature of being a parent to sort of be realistic about who your child is. Maybe your child's a moron or maybe not. I don't know, but we were raised with this ethos that you can be whatever you want to be and that your sort of life's purpose is to pursue that goal. And you pursue it through the college education system there is, we are not the first people to comment on, we will not be the last people to comment on the overproduction crisis uh, in the liberal arts within Western civilization. There are, there's a, I cannot tell you the number of times I've read an article from somebody with, you know, a master's in English who's written a think piece uh, about how, oh, complaining about overproduction is bad. What could be about a, bad about a society of human beings that are education that are educated in the liberal arts. Well, I can tell you it's because to actually run a society, you need a lot more than mm-hmm. English degrees there. There's technical knowledge that needs to be had. There's bureaucratic and political knowledge. There's all sorts of specialized things you need beyond people who can like quote Walden. Yes. Well, and, and so this is a special interest to me. You know, it takes all kinds to, to run a society, but it takes those kinds in kind of their proper proportions. Right. Right. Um, and I'm the kind of person that I, you know, when I did my undergrad, I had a major that was in a, 
in economics, which was a, a bit more technical and allowed me to jump off into a, a master's degree that let me get into, into a good career path. But it also had a great books program, the honors program at the university I went to, which was absolutely indispensable and one of the best experiences of my life. So I'm a big believer in the the intrinsic value of of sort of the liberal arts education. It's just that it's uh, it's cruel to give somebody that intrinsic value without giving them any sort of practical means of supporting themselves. Right. Well, let's say it's like I will say I have a PhD in history, which I like and enjoy. I recognize the contradictions within myself and my position because if everybody decides to go to get a PhD in history, mm-hmm. I want to move somewhere else. Right. Well, it, and and it, you know. If any everybody got a degree in medicine, then we'd have some serious social trouble too, right? I mean, like, yeah. yeah. But, but it's it's about the proper proper proportions, and and the main thing is is that well, and the other thing about it that's 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 a problem is if society has too many people with those degrees from like an economic standpoint, where the degree is not worth something, and you know, uh, as far as a credential or as as far as the skill set being able to give you a means of support then it's a cruelty to tell 18-year-olds that it can give them that, right? That's, that's a big part of the problem here, right, is that, is that you, you know, I can talk about how being able to read Nabokov, for example, and understand what's going on in Nabokov is, uh, you know, good and how that's great art and how there's, there's something proximately intrinsically good in being able to do that, right? Uh, or, or if not, you know, intrinsic, instrumental to an aesthetic is, is, uh, appreciation that gets you to the good, right? Um, but that's very different from me, you know, telling telling so- a teenager who's going to go into college that is very different from telling them, oh, also, if you study Nabokov, you're going to be able to make $70,000 a year once you get out or something like that, right? Like, no matter what the intrinsic value of the liberal arts education is or, or the its its benefices elsewhere, its its goodness outside of the market, if we have a market economy telling people that it's going to give you uh, be, you know success in that market economy, lying to them in that way, if it's not true, is itself very wrong. You know, I think I know where this all starts. Do we? Well, we talked about him we, before. We yeah. talked about Dewey before. I'll talk about I'll talk about him again, and it's because so on one end you have like what Dewey is critiquing is this whole idea that uh, he's critiquing this idea from what he's what from his the standpoint of his life from the 19th century that the purpose of school is to prepare people for the market. Yeah, I am in agreement with him partially that if that is the only animus that you have for for insisting that your society educates your children like we create people in the way that we insist on seeing them and if you Mm -hmm. see children as nothing more than little units of production to be made you're going to get the sort of miserable dystopia that produces on the other hand you have dewey's response to this which is the purpose of school is not to make citizens with marketable skills the purpose of schools is to create better democratic citizens and mass men and over time this very much cultivates uh, the ethos that we're talking about now. This this ethos of like radical individualism, and this idea that uh, that pretty much whatever you're doing is fine, whatever you want to do is fine, as yes. long as you're participating in the broader democratic society, you can pretty much do anything you want, and that and it can be pro-social, it can be sort of pro-civilizational, and that's patently false. That's actually an incredibly dangerous idea, and. I don't think it makes civilization crumble. I think it makes civilization become tyrannical. I, yeah. I think anybody who's listened to this podcast knows I'm a very big fan of summoning Plato's five regimes and uh, his description of how democracy folds into tyranny because freedom and individual choice become sort of the prime goods of society and people start demanding that everything, even up to and including breaking the law, becomes a freedom. Society has no choice but to collapse into tyranny. And I think that's the that's the telos. That's the end of the road of this ethos of pure individuality. Like, look, I'm not I'm not for this idea that uh, the only purpose of education in society is is you know to make little good little producers and consumers. But on the other hand, I do think we should sort of recultivate this ethos of. Look, I know you want to be an artist, but maybe 
be a doctor first and be good at what you do and then pursue art mm-hmm. once you've done that. Because I think we're, we're, we're dangerously straying in the other direction. I think that... Um, I think that one of the problems that comes out of this, or I think that one of the solutions that, to, to these problems that comes out of this is a way of trying to kind of uh, aim for the mean... Uh, where these things go because if you're trying to be uh just completely pro-social right or you're you're straight jacketing people into roles then and and fitting them into them then you know that that takes a serious toll on the individual like you were saying you've seen people that their parents attempted to do that and and they it caused them problems and they rebelled completely against it but on the other hand uh telling people to to you know, do whatever you want and just follow your individual dreams uh, is almost telling them, like, what they do doesn't matter. And having them, you know, not not contemplating the need to do some sort of useful work or to be beneficial to society uh, sort of demoralizes your, your choices in life. And I don't think that that's good because I don't think, because our choices are morally important and sustaining our system, you know, our, our social system is, is important too. And I don't want to reduce that social system to economics, but, you know, one of the interesting things about economics is that since it posits this, an economic system that in many ways is, is self-regulating is that individuals who go out in it and they, you know, they make certain amounts or they, they fail to make money, they make money, that kind of thing is that it is enti- it chugs along and it is entirely self-regulating, uh, in, in its, its price mechanisms. You know, and one of the benefits of that is that is that some forms of economics will then claim that you know if you if you do whatever you want, if you if you follow your own individual way of doing things, and and you make a certain amount of money, then that system kind of takes care of all of the details, right? Because then the system continues to function. Your your preferences in terms of of production and consumption get incorporated into the system. Uh, you know, through through your your working and spending decisions and uh the system just uh chugs right along but i think that when we take a step back from that immediate reality of the economic system we see that or or if we we investigate that system a little more when we see people being paid as much as doctors and engineers and all of these things what we're seeing is that these jobs are really socially necessary and that people should aspire to do the the difficult socially necessary work that's that's within their uh, ability right that you should aspire for you know not a life where you're trying to just crush yourself under work to get to the complete top but a life where you're able to do an appropriate amount of work to uh, be industrious and do the most skilled uh, socially necessary work that's that's within your Uh, that's reasonably within your ability so we started this off about dune and circling this back around to dune i suppose we should finish up by talking about uh, how this relates to intergroup competition so in the dune universe uh we you know we we went over this in the last podcast and i'm not sure if we covered it in the beginning but within the dune universe there's something called the lansrad which is uh, sort of loosely based off uh, the system of sort of uh, nobles and checks and balances that existed in the Holy Roman Empire in uh, medieval and early modern Europe. And what it is, is you have all these different noble houses that are competing against each other, uh, never really gaining too much ground. It's a very sort of like balance of powers sort of system of ma- of uh, maintaining check within Europe. And at the center of it all is the emperor, who has, by the way, his own sort of warrior force that's portrayed very awesomely in the new Villeneuve movie. That one scene, if you've seen it, you know it, and you know it has its entire, its own fan base, and I'm one of those fans. But that aside, so what happens is, within the Lansrad, you always have these houses that are competing against each other. Indeed, the 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 crux around which Dune turns is the Emperor sending one house, uh, the Atreides house, to take the fiefdom of House Harkonnen, uh, thus ensuring that they are going to go to war because there's always been this uneasy tension that goes back in the lore. And so it's this system where all the houses are constantly competing with each other. This is partially because that means they're not directly trying to compete with the Emperor. 
Mm-hmm. And so throughout the Dune universe, there's this sort of interlocking series of uneasy alliances between people who, by pursuing their own self-interest, I guess in a very like Smithian sense, this system quote-unquote works, or at least it's stable. Now, uh, sort of the point of Dune, whenever you get far enough along, is that... Uh, uh, Emperor Leto II recognizes this isn't a stable system and it eventually it has to be changed. That's a different talk for a different time. But the whole idea is that in order to maintain this competition, all these different houses and institutions, whether it's the Spacing Guild or it's the Atreides House or House Harkonnen or uh, the Ixians or the people who make the Mintats, which I think are the Tulilaxu, they all have to make these decisions for people that these people couldn't possibly make themselves because it requires so much like chemical and genetic modification uh, while they're still like in their sort of like fetal stage, especially when it comes to things like Mendats. And so what happens is you have these aristocracies that have to, and it's not just that, it's not just Mendats. They have to make their heirs better, right? Like Paul Atreides has to go through all this sort of intense training just to make sure, like Gavin said, that he doesn't get assassinated so he can survive in this incredibly like horrible internecking sort of world. Yes. And even though we see that as abusive, it is utmostly necessary within this universe. And I don't think personally that that's analogous to the sort of conditioning we're having now, because I think we are producing on the elite level, people who aren't necessarily more effective. They're not more intelligent. They're not more resilient or robust. I think they're probably better bureaucrats sort of filled with elite sensibilities. And in that way, I think it's different from, from the uh, sci-fi lands rat of Dune, but maybe you can give your thoughts, Kevin. Yeah. Well, so the entire system that's articulated in Dune the checks that you've given and the, the institutions that operate in it are required by the system per, to perform their functions, right? The houses have to continue producing people who can strive against the other houses and be functional in politics or they'll be overwhelmed. The same thing with them against the emperor. It's very proximate. All of the function, the institutions like the Spacing Guild uh, and like the Mentats have to work in order for their society to function and they're able to condition people directly into those roles according to the the canons of those different organizations and so the comparison that happens between our society and theirs is to ask uh, what is our society conditioning people for and and what mechanisms in our society are ensuring the kind of functionality that we see there and uh it's unclear that they actually are, right? Because we have the price mechanism that does, uh, to no small extent, harness people's self-interest uh, in order to, to get them to produce economically. So, uh, by the way, just but, explain the price mechanism. Yeah, so the price mechanism is, is basically the, the, the sense in which I mean it right now is that prices for, for example, labor is an input into production. Labor is necessary to produce goods and services. And the price of labor is able to move up and down, right? Employers are able to, to say, hey, I'll hire somebody at this price. And then the uh, employees or people who want to be employed are able to uh, take those jobs or, or leave them. And they're able to change jobs in order to get a better deal. And those prices encode information about what the economy needs to actually produce those goods and services, Right, and so the prices go up if if a service is you know if some it's more necessary and there are fewer people uh, supplying the service, uh, or if the the form of labor is more needed as an input and people are um, needed to supply that, then then the prices will go up. So to some degree, like I was saying earlier, it self-regulates. Uh, but then there are a lot of other parts of our society that it's not apparent that even though people are being pulled into them, that they have immediate social value. And, uh, and there is no you know, sort of, of regulator, regulating mechanism on the outside of them that demonstrates that, uh, that they're doing something that is, that is pro-social. And so the question arises then, uh, you know, what is our society conditioning people for? And to some degree there's a, a question there of if it's conditioning them for anything. 
And I think that's the thing that distinguishes our society from the Dune universe. I think our society, because it's uh, our society is a real society and not a, a fictional construct, is in many ways much more complex than the society in Dune. But I think that when we make the comparison between the two, that's one of the, the core questions that needs to be asked, using it as a paradigm case. Certainly. Uh, on a macro level, I think I think maybe this is the last point that I'll make, is uh, time for Sean Hot Takes. And I think in one very meaningful way, despite all the horrors of the Dune universe and the sort of like interlocking series of like political tensions we describe that upholds uh, the Imperium of Man. I'm sorry, it's not the Imperium of Man. That's Warhammer. It is, uh, they have, a, I think, just the Lands Red. But in one very important way, I think it's more moral than our modern society, partially because it is a fictional universe. And that has to do with my interpretation of technique. Uh, you you have been reading Jack Elul's uh, The Technological Society. Yes. Which I read a while back. And there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of good stuff. But what I do is, so he talks about technique, which uh, like the first third of the book is him detailing what technique is not and giving sort of a precise definition. To give a short definition for everybody out there, I would say it is a means to an end to achieve more efficiency. And that, you know, it can be a piece of technology. It can be magic. It can be a, it can be a psychology. It can be a sort of attitude. It can be a physical piece of technology, but it's a means to an end to achieve more efficiency. And I don't think there are a lot of people that would, I don't think Elul would necessarily argue with me on that definition. But the point is, is that mankind in his philosophical reckoning and in the reckoning of many sort of anti-tech authors like Ted Kaczynski is that we just cannot resist technique. Anytime a new technique is available, we find ourselves incapable of sort of resisting integrating it into our society. Even if we know the effects are going to be miserable, even if say automation is going to put thousands of people out of work, like, but you know, we we can sit around and we can talk about oh what's the cost of implementing this technique in society but ultimately we are going to disenfranchise those truckers or coal miners because we have a better technique what i find interesting in the dune universe is that you could say like ai is the ultimate technique it gets integrated into society to perform all these functions that man didn't want to perform and in the end it becomes sentient and it turns on him and it almost exterminates mankind and so for the first time in human history even though it's a fictional universe they have to sit there and they have to make a conscious decision we have a certain technical capacity that requires a certain level of technique you know to travel yes. to 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 engage in faster than light travel and to have human beings that perform like multivariable calculus by rolling their eyes in the back of their head but we have to deny technique at the same time. And so for the first time, mankind has to sit there and say, we're not going to give in the temptation of technique. What moral choices do we have to make so that we can resist this inevitable gravity toward technique that Elul describes? And the answer is what we've been talking about. Making decisions, like sort of basically uh, making decisions for people before they're born often but not always to horrifying consequence and even though it's a fictional universe i do think the interpretation of dune through the conscious rejection of technique and what sort of sacrifices humanity would have to make to reject technique that you know so that it may not consume and destroy us all i think that's a very worthwhile conversation to have in the future about what the cost of rejecting technique is. I think the last thing that I'll say is to, to take the discussion of technique in the other direction to say that when you have a definition of technique that looks at, because uh, you're talking about rejecting technique, you know, technique is, like you said, a means to an end and a, a means uh, to efficiently achieving the end. And it's uh, something that seems to be largely beyond human control. Once it's there, the temptation is always to find that that low energy state, right, where you're you're using the technique to to minimize the the effort needed to achieve whatever the defined end is. I think that we're entering a period, or maybe we've already been in the period where the defined end of the end that the technique is being applied to can be um, uh, performative 
rather than actual problem solving. Right? It can be to pretend to carry out technique towards some uh, meaningful end or to think that you are when in reality you're deceiving yourself and you aren't actually achieving your end. And so I think that when we're uh, in this, this sort of postmodern age... A simulation of technique. Yeah. We, we move into a situation where we, we perform what seem to be the proper rites, the proper incantations to bring forth uh, some sort of social change or some sort of betterment of our situation, but in reality we're just uh, going through the motions of something that doesn't actually work. We are the, we are the, the tech priests of our own castrated systems. Yes. <laughs> in the most cynical and dark way that I could possibly put that. Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle. Our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com to send us questions, comments, and topic ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at CultureCampCast, and give us a five-star rating on Spotify. Thanks for listening.